All right. <clears throat> well, I kind of alluded to it at the very beginning, but I was kind of stuck this week trying to figure out what to do. I started looking at the calendar and just realized, you know, we got this week and next week, and then we're going to break for a couple weeks for Christmas. New. We don't have Sunday school for two weeks. I'll be out the week after that because I'm, I'm going to be at winter camp with the youth. And so then I just started thinking, if I start chapter 5, and we still weren't finished with chapter 4, so I was kind of this, like, conundrum. What do I do here? And so I have a plan. I hope it's okay with you. We're going to slow down today. That might be okay with all of you. I know <laughs> last week, I, you know, I know I talk fast. I get it all the time. I know it's a problem, and I really, really want to change. But last week, I felt like I just threw all restraint out the door, and it was like, and like flipping all over the Bible. And I just thought, when I got done, I was thinking, those poor people. <laughs> and Lord, I've got to change. So anyway, we're going to slow down today. I'm going to finish the Cities of Refuge in Chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Uh, we'll give a little uh, you know, uh, preview into the next exposition, which really kind of starts, the, the, the beginning of it starts at the end of Chapter 4. And then... Uh, chapters 5 all the way through 28 is really the second sermon, the second exposition. And we're going to start that after the Christmas break. So here's kind of what I mapped it out to. Anna also was like, I want to know how long it's going to take me to get through Deuteronomy. So I came up with a plan. Now, whether or not we stick to the plan, you know, only the Lord knows. But we're going to try to stick to it. So here's what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to finish up chapter 4, talk about these cities of refuge briefly. And then I thought it might be a good chance to look through, like, what have we learned in this first, because we, we're finished with the first sermon of Moses, the first exposition, like, what have we learned, what are the things that weren't clear, anything, any questions, that kind of stuff. Um, if you got no questions, there's a couple of things that I thought, that, that I've been walking through in my studies that I just haven't brought up in class that I thought would be worth talking about. Next week, we'll do a Deuteronomy Christmas. thought it'd be cool to look through the book of Deuteronomy and all the different prophecies of Christ, the things that foreshadow Christ, and talk about Christ in Deuteronomy as we walk into Christmas. So I thought that would be a really cool thing. And then, and then like I said, I'll, uh, we'll have two weeks off. I'll be out January 7th. Um, and, so, uh, and then January 14th, we'll start the second exposition. I'll be out uh, two Sundays in February as well, but we'll have a few Sundays in between there. And then after that, I don't see anything on the calendar uh, until, I guess, Easter, and then step up Sunday in September. So... You know, but there's always the Lord's plans. <laughs> so my hope is to actually finish Deuteronomy by the end of next year. So I mapped it all out. Uh, I looked at different chapters. And I was like, I know we're going to be in that one, that chapter for a couple of weeks. But some of these chapters, I think we can easily do in a week. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, I kind of mapped the whole thing out. That's the plan. Because a few of you guys have asked, are we going to be in this for like eight years? And <laughs> I know it could seem that way. But that's the plan to try to finish Deuteronomy uh, in a year. So, uh, so what we're going to do today, like I said, is finish up chapter four um, and then uh, use it as a week to just kind of like review, um, look ahead or look back at what, we, what we've talked about, um, see if there needs to be any clarification, things like that. And then, and then we can talk about what's coming. Um, but anyway, so we are, like I said, at the end of the first uh, exposition of Moses. They're on the plains of Moab. This is the second generation of Israel about to cross the Jordan River, and they're going to go in and take the land that God has given to them that he promised Abraham hundreds of years before, and it is time uh, for them to take possession of the land uh, that he promised to them. Uh, and Moses is on the plains of Moab, and he's basically giving three different sermons, expositions, uh, um, uh, three different um, messages to 
the second generation of Israel. Uh, the first one is really focused on what they have just walked through. Uh, the, it's kind of the history of, of them coming out of Egypt, uh, what the Lord promised Abraham, what happened to their parents uh, in their disobedience and in the wilderness and all that. And then what the Lord has done through them since the first generation has passed away and how they took um, all of the territory uh, west of the Jordan from Sion and Og and how that was an impossible task for the Israelites. And they should understand that through what God did, that they just got to keep trusting him, keep obeying him. He will be the one to give them victory. And so, and then after that, uh, at the very end of chapter 4, or I'm sorry, in chapter 4, at the very end of the history, uh, really there was uh, an admonition to listen to, to keep, to obey, to follow the Lord. That is where their strength is. That is where their power is, if you want to say that way. That's, that's how they're going to take possession of the land, enter in, and live in the land. It's dependent upon their submission and obedience to the Lord, um, which is the, the heartbeat and the backbone of this whole book. I mean, that's what you're going to see over and over and over and over and over. Listen to what the Lord says. Keep his commands close. Obey everything he says. That's, that is what this, all three of the messages are about. But at the very end, we just talked for the last couple of weeks, or last, I guess just last week, about the latter days. At the very end of chapter 4, when he's telling Israel to listen, to keep, to do, to watch over their soul, to make sure that they follow God, uh, he tells them that they will fall away. That is what has been foretold of Israel. That's what's going to happen. They will not listen. They will eventually fall away. They will follow the idols of, of the people of the land and even the idols they bring in from Egypt, and they will eventually fall away from the Lord. But he also says, but God will be faithful to restore them. Uh, and it talks about their repentance, their future repentance, their future redemption. It even brings in the first little, uh, the first little kind of uh, uh, glimpse of new covenant language in Deuteronomy that talks about the future when he circumcises their hearts and makes it possible for them, what we're going to eventually see in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, for them to love him, for them to repent. He does something to their hearts so that they're able to follow him, to repent, to return to him, and to, to love the Lord uh, and to fear him. And so we talked about that last week. Um, we talked about in Ezekiel 20 um, how it kind of gives the full story. And then we said in Deuteronomy 4.30, I thought that was kind of a key verse in the whole thing. He says, when you're in distress, and, and again, we talked in Jeremiah 30 about Jacob's distress. This is talking about the time of tribulation at the very end before the return of Christ. He says, during this time of distress, and all these things have come upon you, which is the judgment, them being kicked out of the land, them being scattered, them worshiping idols and the lands far away and all that sort of stuff. He says, in the latter days, which always refers to end times eschatological stuff, you will return. We said that's the word for repent. You will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. And so... This is a key verse there in Deuteronomy 4. During the tribulation, in the latter days, before the return of Christ, there will be a repentance, a national repentance of Israel, and they will return to the Lord. They will listen to his voice after he does something to their heart, to circumcise their heart so that they're able to understand and comprehend and come to him. And then after that, he reminds them also of the uniqueness of their situation. He says, no, therefore today, and, and, um, and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven, Above and on the earth below, there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you uh, and with your children after you, that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. That's the ending statement of the first sermon. And so it's a call at the very end after he tells them, 
Uh, there has been no other nation that has been formed within a nation by God and then brought out of that nation, stood in the presence of God, or came out through miraculous deliverances, and then stood in the presence of God, saw his fire, saw his darkness, heard his voice from heaven. He actually gave uh, this nation his word, his law on how to worship him, follow him, obey him, run their nation. He's like, that, there, that nothing like that has ever happened before and will ever happen again. Israel is absolutely unique in that way, and he tells them that. It has nothing to do with Israel being better or bigger or anything like that. It has everything to do with God being faithful, with God choosing them, with God promising their forefathers he would do this. Now he's doing it, and it's, this is the generation it is happening to. And so he reminds them at the very end to listen to him. No, there, there is no other God, and you must keep his statutes and his commandments for it to go well with you, for you to live long on the land, even though he says that they will not live long on the land. But it is the land that is given to them for all time. And so we have both their, their fall, their being kicked out of the land, God's faithfulness to restore them when they repent, the, their repentance made possible through the work that he will do in their hearts um, and the promises that he made uh, to Abraham uh, will be fulfilled. It is their land for all time. For the meantime, they're still called to obey, and their obedience, and they're listening to him and following him and submitting to him, is directly uh, related to how long they last in the land. And so that's where we left off. That's the end of the first uh, sermon. And then between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, you have, what is that, uh, 41 to, I don't know how, is it good, to 49? You have a, a few verses there. Uh, that really are kind of um, the, they're not part of the sermon, but they're more of a narrative of what happens. Um, and then this, the beginning of the next, the next sermon. And so he, he addresses here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 41 to 49, these cities of refuge. I guess it's 41 to 43 are the cities of refuge, and then 44 to 49 is the, uh, the beginning of the, the second Uh, the second sermon. So this is not part of the address of Moses. He's just explained everything um, uh, that they need to know uh, concerning obedience to him and all of that. And now he's going to address these cities of refuge. Um, But these cities of refuge, he's actually already talked about. If you read Numbers 35, uh, 1 through 34, uh, while they were on the plains of Moab, after the rebellion uh, with Baal of Peor, Lord, the Lord has already explained the purpose and placement of these cities. And so here, if you look at it chronologically, Moses is just reminding them of what they had talked about prior to these sermons. Does that make sense? And so he's going to mention it. So we'll go back and look at that today. But here he just briefly talks about the cities of refuge that should be established on the west side of the Jordan. Here's what he says. It says, Then Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east, that a manslayer might flee there who unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity towards him in the past. And by fleeing to one of these cities, he might live. Bezer in the wilderness of the plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan Golan in Bashan for the uh, uh, Manassites. And so these are the three cities of refuge that the Lord told Moses to set up west of the Jordan uh, where basically they were designated for people who accidentally killed another Israelite or another person. Uh, and then the judges of that land and uh, the Levites would be able to, uh, uh, to have a trial uh, to, te- to, to figure out whether or not this was premeditated, whether or not there was some sort of disagreement or anger in the heart of the person that did it, or whether it was an actual accident. 
Um, and, uh, and, and he talks about, I believe it's in Numbers, I can't remember if it's in Numbers or it's in Joshua. He even gives examples. Like you were swinging an axe, you were cutting down a tree, and the head of the axe flies off and kills something. I mean, it would be an accidental uh, um, uh, murder of, of, of someone else. It wouldn't be a premeditated murder. Yeah. And uh, he, basically he's saying um, this would be a place where they could flee. What? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I missed it. <laughs> what was it? Uh, we, were, we were talking to a couple this week, and, and the girl had a shirt that said, um, let's see, I, I want my pun, like, it said something like, I, I want my pun intended or something like that. And I like, read it, and I was like, what? <laughs> and my wife had to explain it to me. <laughs> I'm not good with puns. <laughs> Um, so anyway, this was a, a place that someone could take refuge until there could be a trial to determine whether or not this person uh, did it purposefully. Uh, if they did, again, that, w- that, was, that was one of the things that the Lord established, even all the way back to, to Noah, um, that uh, anyone that murdered another human, it was the, the, the consequence of that was that their life should be taken. That's why many Christians, I believe all Christians, should be pro-death penalty. I mean, that's like how the Lord set up the world. It's not a law to Moses. It's just how it is. And, uh, but God told the Israelites, for sure, in his nation, in his country, that was the civil law. If blood was shed, then blood, then it required the blood of the person who shed the blood to, to, um, to basic, that was, that was the, the consequence of murder. Um, so anyway, all... Yeah, I mean, because accidents, again, it'd be, you know, an accidental, like you got in a, a car accident, that would be an accidental manslaughter, you know, it's not, it wasn't purpose, but if there was intent, if you could find intent or a reason, or there was anger, like he says here, there was, there was enmity in the past, even if there was enmity in the past, you know, it could be a long time went by, but this is just an opportune time that you can make it look like it was an accident, I mean, that, that would be the point of the city of refuge, is to, this person could take refuge so that, so that the, the, the sibling or the, the relative of the person that was killed doesn't kill them because they would have the right to do that. Uh, and so it's a place for them to basically take refuge until a trial could be had. Um, and so all that being said, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them. We're actually going to get deeper into this in Deuteronomy 18, right? 18, 19, I can't remember now. I didn't, didn't write it down. But in Deuteronomy 18 or 19, he's going to talk about in more depth the purpose of these cities. But, again, if you look at it chronologically, he just, he just did this with the Israelites in, in Numbers 35. Um, the, so what we're going to find out is there are 48 Levitical cities that are going to be set up in Israel. All right? And these six cities, there's going to be three on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, the cities of refuge are going to be spread out. They're all Levitical cities, and they're spread out through Israel. Um, if you know anything about uh, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they have no inheritance in Israel. In fact, their role, their inheritance uh, is, is the Lord, and their role is to be the priests of the nation. Uh, so, you know, when they're walking through the desert, they're the ones that are setting up, tearing down the tabernacle. They're the ones that do all of that. They're the ones that do the worship, do the um, uh, sacrifices and the offerings in the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle is set in Shiloh, well, then there would be, well, there'll be no setting up, tearing down all that. And so what the Lord's going to do is spread the tribe of Levite out through, or the Levi out through the nation of Israel to be the, the, the cities of priests that are supposed to be there for, uh, to shepherd the nation. 
they're the ones that proclaim the law of God. They're the ones that are supposed to keep Israel uh, focused on the law, on the Mosaic covenant and, and obeying him. So that's what's going to happen. Once they make it through the desert, God's going to spread the Levites out through the nation. They won't have a single territory. And they're going to have 48 cities. And those 48 cities are spread out on both sides of the Jordan River throughout the nation of Israel. And then there are six cities, six cities of refuge that are spread out, as you can see with the big red dots, throughout the nations for if, if there is... Um, uh, 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 someone is killed, people can flee there. The whole Levites having no inheritance is, is set over in Scripture, but I just gave you some examples here. In Numbers 18, the Levites will perform the, the service of the tent of meeting. They'll bear the iniquity uh, of their people. It'll be a perpetual statute throughout their generations. They shall have no inheritance. Numbers 18, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. Again, the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Uh, the Lord, or Moses did not give them an inheritance. Uh, and then in Joshua 18, the Levites have no portion among you because of the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And so all that being said, uh, that's, that's what's going to happen to the tribe of Levi. They're going to be spread out throughout the nation. Um, and, and their service is to be the priests of the Lord. They're supposed to uh, maintain, uphold the law, teach the law, uh, to make sure that the people hear the truth of God's word uh, and don't stray from the Lord and engage in idolatry. Um, and so uh, all that being said, in Numbers 35, uh, Moses has already, Numbers 35 is after the, um, uh, the Israelites have taken the land west of the Jordan. We've talked about this. They're on the plains of Moab, and then that's the whole story with Balaam and Balak and all of that. And this is the second generation, and they engage in immorality with the, the people of Midian. And, uh, and then they, um, they, uh, they, they basically uh, uh, stray from the Lord right there at the very end. And so the Lord wipes out, I can't remember the exact number, is it 23,000, 24,000 of them right before they go into the promised land? And that becomes one more reminder even the second generation that wasn't wiped out because of the first rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, they rebelled against the Lord right before they wiped them out too. Do not attach yourself to an idol, engage in immorality, and don't intermarry with the people of the land. After that, you have the rest of them, and the Lord explains in Numbers 35 about these uh, cities of refuge. So this is just uh, kind of a... Well, yeah, actually, here it is. So it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite of Jericho. He said, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to live in, and the pasture lands shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for their beasts. So again, they're given cities, they're given places to, for, for the things that belong to the Levites. Um, the pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. So you shall measure outside the city uh, on the east side 2,000 cubits, the south side 2,000, west and north 2,000, with the city in the center. That shall be their pasture lands for the cities. Now, if you basically measure it out, it's basically a little more than a half a mile around the city would be pasture lands that belong to the Levites for their uh, herds, uh, which is about 360 acres around the city. So they would have a city and they'd have the pasture lands around the city. Those were the cities of the Levites. They were spread out through Israel. So all that being said, there was 48 of those cities. Um, and after the land was conquered in Joshua 21, Joshua lays out all 48 cities and then the six cities of refuge. Um, and again, this is just a, a brief uh, excerpt from Joshua 21 uh, with the map again to kind of show you what we're looking at. 
but it says, Then the heads of the house of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nine, and the, house, the heads of the households of the tribes, the sons of Israel. This is after they took the land. And it says, They spoke to them in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle set up. By the way, that was the, the first place where the tabernacle was, where they would come to worship the Lord. Before he set his uh, temple in Jerusalem, the tabernacle was in Shiloh. Um, and uh, so they went to Shiloh and uh, in, in the land of Canaan. They said, the Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. And that names every single city. It says, all the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities with their pasture lands. So that's, that's where we get, that's how we know uh, what the Lord did with the Levites and where he placed them. And so all that being said, that's where we, you know, in Deuteronomy 40, or 4, 41 to 43, this is after Numbers 35, and Moses actually does the work of setting apart these three cities on the west side. Moses is going to die. That's why Joshua will set up the rest of the cities once they take the land on the east side. And so that's where we kind of end up in the narrative. Moses set apart these three cities across the Jordan. The whole point of them is a man might flee there if he unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity toward him in the past. He could flee to the city and live. Now, there was still a trial. It wasn't like you could, like, I mean, because someone could flee here that actually did have enmity towards their neighbor or did purposely murder the neighbor and made it look like an accident. And that was the whole purpose of the Levites in the trial uh, to, to see whether or not that happened. But th- this is someone trying to map out. We don't know where all these cities are. And you can see with a question mark, there's, a, there's some of these cities we don't know exactly where they are, but we, there's some of these that we do know where they are. But this is kind of a map of best guess of where the ones that we don't know and the ones we do know are on the, the map. And then the, the flags are the actual cities of refuge. And again, in Joshua 20, he lays out the rest of the cities of refuge. So it's uh, Kadesh in Galilee, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, uh, Kiriath Arba, which is also Hebron, which is down there in the hill country of Judah. Uh, on the east of the Jordan, you got Bezer, which is down here in the south, Ramoth Gilead, which is up in the middle, and then Golan up in the Golan Heights up there. And so that's where the cities of refuge are. And again, you can see how the Lord did that, and he spread them out so that wherever you are, there would be a city of refuge within distance to be able to go if something like that happened. Um, so, uh, all that being said, I was going to tell you a little bit. I mean, they've, they believe that they've found Bezer. Um, they believe that they know, every, they do know where uh, Golan is, um, but I don't know if you care to know about all that stuff. They're, they look for the ruins of these places and, and try to figure out where they're at. It's fascinating to kind of look at, but then when it really comes down to why that matters to you, I don't know if it does. But if you want to go look it up, you can read on these archaeological finds. Sometimes they'll think it's this tell, this hill, where they find it, and then eventually they'll find better evidence that's in another place. By the way, that's something that I've been deep into in the midst of this whole study. Because uh, archaeology, just like anything else, it just depends on who's doing the work, right? I mean, you got a scientist. We, we talk about evolution all the time. You've got two scientists that look at the exact same thing. One says this is a, a testimony to God's glory and his creation and falls right in line with the Bible. And the other person says this disproves everything about God, right? Same thing with archaeology. you got archaeologists. just depends on where they're coming from and how they want to interpret whatever they dig up. And so you'll have archaeological finds. Actually, I was reading about Jericho recently. And they found all this stuff that coincides exactly with a biblical understanding. And in fact, for a long time, they used Jericho as an example of the, the narrative of the Bible being true and legitimate, the timing and everything. 
Uh, they've since then, because of Palestinian stuff, and they don't, the Palestinians do not want the Israelites to have any history in Jericho because that would say that it doesn't belong to them. They've actually reburied parts of Jericho, uh, especially parts that, that, would, that would coincide with the biblical narrative. And they're not allowing, and then they've changed all the signage and everything. But that happens everywhere. So again, when you read stuff, even these maps that I show you, a few of you guys have asked about the maps. If you go look, if you Google map of the Exodus, you'll get like 30 different maps. Because it just depends on the person that made the map and what they believe. And, and does that make sense? And so, you know, and so definitely over the last 150 years, liberal, either theologically liberal or just worldly archaeologists have changed a lot of the narrative. But you can still find Christians or people who believe in the integrity of the Word of God that are doing archaeological work that give you solid evidence and, and helpful maps that help you to kind of see it. Does that make sense? So anyway, uh, it is neat, though, when you start reading some of this stuff. Numbers 35 basically is, is really tells us the purpose of the cities of refuge. And I think this is scripture, interpreting scripture to help you understand what the Lord's doing here. Not that this is hard to understand. It's a city that someone who kills someone is able to flee to until they get a trial. But this is what the Lord actually says. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, opposite of Jericho. We already read that part. Verse 6. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. In addition to them, you shall give them 42 cities. So they got 48 altogether. Six of them are cities of refuge. All the cities which you shall give the Levites shall be 48 cities. And when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourself cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The cities shall be to you a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. That's the point. Does that make sense? And so, so that, that a death sentence wouldn't be you know, carried out before there could be a trial. The cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. They are to be the cities of refuge. The congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. And he shall live there until the death of the high priest. Now, again, I cut out some of this um, because it was just long. But if the guy who was acquitted or who was declared innocent left that city of refuge, then he could be killed. And so that was his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Then he could be brought back to his home or to his tribe. That was, that was just the law of the land. It was a way to protect someone uh, from revenge of, of a sibling or revenge of, of someone that, uh, that, that you know, had their, per, their, their relative or whoever it was taken from them. After the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. That's the point. And God's already said that in, in the law. Like, if, if you murder, then the, the, then the um, just thing is for that person to die. And so this would be if someone accidentally killed someone, uh, but he's, and, and it has to go through a trial. The Levites have to make sure it is an accident because blood pollutes the land. In other words, God does not condone murder, and the, and the sentence for murder is that you, that you are killed. And uh, no ex, uh, expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. 
You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. So God doesn't condone murder. God does not allow murder in his land. Uh, Actually, I read a really neat article recently. Again, we're pro-Israel. We want Israel. uh, We don't want the, you know, Hamas killing Israelites and things like that. But to think that the people living in Israel right now are, like, God's people, are worshiping the Lord in that sense. I mean, one of the things the article said was Israel is still pro-abortion. There's no way that, that Israel is right with God when they're killing their own children and their own babies. You know what I mean? And so, again, for Israel to be regathered and for Israel to repent is going to take a work of the Lord in the hearts of those people. It will happen. But, but the people that are there right now are just as pagan as any group of Israelite. You know what I mean? Uh, but still, there has to be a nation, and the Lord has to use some nation to rebuild the temple and to do all these things before Christ returns. So in that sense, I mean, God's doing his work. But, but it's not the repentant, regathered nation of Israel. Other things have to happen before that happens. Anyway, so that's, that's the cities of refuge. And really, that's the end. Uh, that's the narrative that happens after the exposition. Uh, it's a way for the Lord to protect um, people that, that murder some or kill someone by accident. After that, you have the very end of Deuteronomy 4. And I just want to finish it so that we can be done with Deuteronomy 4. But we'll reread it when we start Deuteronomy 5 because it's really the beginning of the next exposition. So after that, it says, Now this is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which Moses spoke to the sons of Israel. That's what the second exposition is all about. He's actually going to get into the law, get into the statutes that God gave him. He's going to start at Mount Sinai, and then he's going to talk about the actual law. First one's really history. Second one, we're going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant. He says, when they came out of Egypt, across the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of uh, Sion, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon, who Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. So again, we just talked about this. This is the beginning of another narrative or another sermon. They took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of uh, Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan to the east. From Aruer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and a lot of the, hopefully a lot of these names now make sense. You know, the, the Arnon Valley where the river was is the border between Moab and, um, and Ammon and all that. Even as far as Mount Sion, I'm sorry, Moab and um, Edom. As far as Mount Sion, which is the very top of the, the kingdom of Og that, that we took, um, uh, with all the Arabah across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, which is uh, the, the Sea of the Araba is the, the um, Gulf of Aqaba down there at the very bottom, uh, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. So that's talking about the, the, where Moses would have crossed the Red Sea right there. Uh, then Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, and then he'll begin the next exposition. So, and actually the second, that, that's exactly how the first one started. I mean, very similar words. Uh, this is how we started the first exposition. These are the words of Moses to all the Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah office of Suf. Uh, between uh, Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazroth, Dizabah. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb to the way, uh, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. By the way, I've been digging into all that for like the last month, and that means so much more to me now than when I preached to you the first time. I wish I had had all this other stuff in my head when we preached it the first time. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, so again, I'm just showing you. This is how the first sermon started. The second sermon really starts with the very end of Deuteronomy 4, um, whoops, right here. And then it begins in 5.1 with Moses uh, summoned Israel and said to
them. And then that's the actual words of the sermon. So we're going to pick that up. Like I said, I didn't want to start it today. And then, you know, we'll, we'll, bear, we'll start five and then take a three-week break. We'd have to really be like, what do we talk about before the break? So I just figured let's wait till uh, we return. And we'll, we'll do a Deuteronomy Christmas next week, which I think will be really cool. Um, just looking at the prophecies of Christ. But I just want to take the rest of this time uh, to really look at what we looked at and see if there's anything that you want to talk about. I don't do good with leaving time for questions uh, and, and, uh, and clarifications. But this is what we looked at. If you haven't been here or if you have been here for a way of reminder, uh, chapter 1 was really the, the story of the, the nation of Israel after they came out of Egypt uh, in Kadesh Barnea. They sent spies out into the land, and, um, and then they decided, we can't take this land. The people are too big. The, the cities are too fortified. And they listened to the bad report of the spies, and they decided not to go up. And so because of that, God swore that none of the first generation would enter into the land. He would take their children into the land, but they were all going to die in the wilderness. So that was chapter 1. And, and again, Moses is telling the second generation, don't forget what happened at Kadesh Barnea. Chapters 2 and 3 were basically, chapter 2 focused on the defeat of Sion, the Amorite king, and Heshbon. Uh, chapter 3 focused on the defeat of Og, the Amorite king, and Bashan, both of which they should not have been able to defeat, but they did easily without the loss of any Israelite that we know of. And so he, he's reminding them in those two chapters, you know, if you just trust the Lord, listen to what he says, believe him and submit to him in obedience, he takes care of you. You will take possession of the land. In the same way that you took all the west of the Jordan, then cross that river and keep obeying the Lord. Your victory, your ability to take the land, and your ability to stay and to live in the land is dependent on your submission to the Lord. So that was the whole point of chapter 2 and 3. And then chapter 4 is really, like I said, the application, the end of the sermon, the the, the guidance towards obedience. And we talked about the five different application points that come from the first 24 verses. All of them were about obedience. All of them were about listening. Teach your children to listen. Teach them to follow the Lord. Make sure that you obey everything he says. Their ability to do anything is based on their faithfulness to God. God's always going to be faithful, but their ability to live, to take the land, to all that is going to be based on their faithfulness. Then he talks about the latter days where they will fall away, but God, because of his faithfulness, will restore them because he cannot go back on his promises to Abraham. Uh, he talks about the cities of refuge, and then really, like we just read, it's the beginning of the second exposition. So that's the first exposition of Moses. That's the first thing that he talks to the second generation about, and that's kind of the end of, of what I got for today. So I wanted to see if you have any questions. If not, I did prepare, just in case, uh, to talk a little bit about hermeneutical principles. How do you read the Old Testament, uh, and, and how do you apply the Old Testament as the church um, and as Christians? Um, and, uh, and then, if you're really into it, I'll tell you about where I think Moses crossed the Red Sea. That's cool. But I wanted, this is more important. So, uh, yeah, what you got? Oh, well, so it actually goes back to, to this stuff. So, well, now you're going to get me into the Moses crossing the Red Sea stuff. Uh, let, let's see if there's any... I want to know if anybody needs clarification on any of this first, because especially chapter 4. Chapter 4 is, is the heart, you know, and that's what we're going to... You're going to see that in chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's almost like what he says in chapter 4, he repeats over and 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 over, because they've got to listen They've got to trust what God says. 
They've got to obey and they've got to submit. We are in the exact same. We're not Israel. We're not taking land. And we don't have the Mosaic Covenant hanging over our head. But it all applies directly to us. I mean, even what Shane said today, right? Our love of Christ is proven by our obedience to him. And in fact, he says, those who love me obey my commands. Those who love me submit to every word I say. I mean, that's, that's our love for the Lord is manifest in our submission, obedience, and trust of his word and what we do with it. You know what I mean? So all that being said, I will totally jump into that stuff. But I just really want to make sure that we're, we're good and clear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that's a big question because there's a lot of stuff that happened later. But yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, here's the here's the map to kind of show you. So uh, you're right. Everybody, everybody on this planet was related to somebody that got off that boat. So I mean, in that sense, we're still all related to each other. Uh, and it was Noah and his three sons and their wives, right? And so Noah and his wife. So so eight people on the boat. We all came from one of them. Uh, all that being said, these lands over here are related from Abraham. So uh, Edom, Edom is, is uh, Esau. So um, uh, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob was the one that is the promised land of Christ, the one through which the Abrahamic covenant, all that would come. But the Lord did bless Esau. The Lord gave Esau a land, and this is Esau's land. And actually, this land, and this is where the, the Midianites are down here uh, in this area, um, Wait, Midian, actually where, Midian would be, yeah, it's, it's in the Arabian Desert. This is Edom, that's right, Midian is below Edom. So, um, and, and the Midianites also came from Abraham. It was his second wife, I can't remember her name, but the Midianites came from Abraham. Uh, the Edomites would have come from, you know, that, that was Jacob's brother. Uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites, those were the children born to Lot with the relationship with his daughter after they left Sodom and Gomorrah. And so these were all relatives, and God actually gave them land too. So this land belongs to them, and that's why the Lord told Israel, I'm not giving you this. This doesn't belong to you. You need to go around. They, they had to go around Edom because the king wouldn't let them in. And so they weren't allowed to touch. They walked right through Moab, didn't do anything there. They did take this and this, but that's because the Amorites, which were... Um, uh, not related. They were, I mean, again, they got off the boat, but they weren't part of this group. They had taken this land from uh, Moab and from Ammon. And so Israel did take the land back from the Amorites, and that became Israel. Does that answer your question? Yep. Cool. Yeah. But all these guys, uh, most of these people in the land of Canaan came from uh, Ham, right? Yeah, Ham. And uh, that was, his descendant was Canaan, and a lot of the... the um, pagan people in the, the land of Canaan, and maybe most of them were from the line of Ham, best we understand. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it would be a, a fresh victory for sure, and it was evidence and proof that the Lord would deliver and they've just obeyed. Uh, but again, I think part of them talk, they're Amorites, which uh, I don't know if you're here that we, we talked about that. These are big people. I mean, they're, they're giants. They're huge. And uh, they're powerful. They're feared by the Egyptians and the people around them. There's uh, historical they're, they're, um, writings that we found that people were afraid of the people of Canaan because they were big people. And, uh, and so the fact that they took these Amorite kings, and actually after they defeated them, I mean, word traveled everywhere. Sion and Og were just taken out by a bunch of people that, like, wandered in the... De- I mean, there were just a bunch of shepherds and farmers, and, and they just killed two of the most powerful nations in that area. And so it was definitely a fresh victory. It was definitely evidence and proof that God will deliver you if you obey him. But it was also an impossible victory. And he's saying, so don't fear when you cross the Jordan. It's just more of the same. I, I defeated these two. I'll keep doing it, you know? Yeah, good question. Anything else? This is just a, a fun comment. Yeah, yeah. Really um, we've been reading through, you know, like Moses and stuff, like children's Bible. Uh-huh. Like my, my three-year-old, six-year-old, and eight-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And um, after the whole, like, you gave out the papers about the giants, that was kind of... Oh, funny. yeah. We measured together the bed. Oh, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> and they were very impressed. You need a bigger room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I love that stuff. Like, that's the stuff that I would, I mean, you know, if I was just like, let's talk about fascinating things. I mean, I would talk about giants for like a month and a half in here, you know. Like, uh, actually, when I got done, someone recommended. So one of the guys that was, wrote one of those Answers in Genesis articles actually did his doctorate dissertation on the Nephilim and the, and the Amorites and all these people groups and, and tried to. So he wrote a, it's a, he turned it into a book. And I did buy it, but I haven't read it yet. But, uh, but somebody told me about it. I didn't know it was even out there. And so um, I'm, I want to read that. It is fascinating. And it just shows you, again, why people were afraid. When the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea were afraid, so would you. You know what I mean? It's like if you walked in, these people are twice your size. And not just like lanky, tall people. Like, I mean, it's like they're, they're warriors, you know? And, I mean, you would be terrified. And they have cities built up. I mean, it's just, uh, you know... It, it, it brings legitimacy to the story itself. And, it, and, and then, yeah, you measure out Og. I mean, that, that bed was at 13 and a half feet long. That's crazy. It's a big bed. Either the guy liked to roll around <laughs> or he was a big dude, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really giving meaning to the way I did a study on like what what is the symbolism behind that? We're talking about the blood flew to the land. Yeah. And what I found was that to the ancient people's blood, you didn't see it unless you died. Yeah, yeah. And so like when they killed animals or whatever, so blood became symbolic or, or equivalent with death. So that I think is really cool when you start hearing about these sacrifices and talk about Yeah. Yeah, the, the life of the animal. I mean, it was required. The sacrifice, I mean, so that, that was part of the point of the sacrifices. It's for them to see. I mean, you think about how awful that would be. And these are lambs that they love. They're, they're, they're unblemished little baby lambs. I mean, 
you know that the kids would have loved those little lambs, and they would have had... Another pun. Huh? Another pun. Really? The kids would have liked it. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how y'all's brains work. Pun, <laughs> pun people <laughs> are... A, I, I, don't, I don't work like that. <laughs> Write it down. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it would have been a continual, I mean, and you think about the amount of sacrifices, the, the, the frequency of the sacrifices, the animals required in sacrifice, and how they sacrificed them. I mean, that would have been in the heart and mind, or, or in the eyes and the minds of all the Israel. They would have known their sin cost, I mean, their sin was causing death of animals all over the place, and it never atoned. It never was, was enough, you know? And, uh, and I think that, again, it would be... Uh, you know, I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons, you know, we, we glory in what Christ has done. But probably because it's not right in front of our face, you know, uh, we forget how awful our sin is. But if you watch your little lamb, like that little lamb that was in your house has to die because of you. You know what I mean? It's just that would have been continual reminder, not only of how awful we are. It, that's what it should have been. But how we need the, the one that all this stuff points to, you know. And uh, so, yeah, Hebrews is awesome which is a good segue to the hermeneutics. So, yeah. So just to let you know, I, I think the, the biggest thing, okay, so, okay, I thought about this too. I, I, I use these words sometimes. What if you don't even know what we're talking about? Hermeneutics is how you basically, it's the methods, techniques, rules that you use to interpret Scripture. So when we talk about hermeneutics, that's what we're saying. Uh, we're talking about how do you interpret Scripture. And the point of our interpretation is to get the, what was the intent? Why did God have this written uh, communicate that. Why is it in Scripture? What did God intend for it to mean? It doesn't mean whatever we want it to mean. It doesn't mean what we feel like it means. It doesn't even necessarily mean what somebody else said it means. It means exactly what God meant it to mean. And so our goal, like what we do here at Faith Community Church and what we encourage everyone to do is read God's Word and strive to figure out exactly what He meant and what the author who wrote it down meant and what the people would have understood it to mean when it was written down. The authorial intent is what we're aiming at. And so our hermeneutic is basically striving, and we, we call it a historical grammatical hermeneutic. What that means is what is the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, and a little bit uh, in Daniel, like what does the, the original language say, and what does that mean in the, in the context of the historical setting, so what would the people have understood it to mean in, in, when it was written, and in the context of Scripture as a whole. Scripture always interprets Scripture. Scripture never contradicts. God doesn't uh, say something here and then say something over here that contradicts what he said. Uh, scripture is, uh, uh, continues to, to reveal things over time, but it all works together. So Context is king. You're looking at the, the near context, the context of the book, the context of the Old Testament, the context of the whole. Scripture will help you understand the context. Uh, and then you look at the grammar and the history of it. Um, and so that's what, we, that's what we say when we talk about our hermeneutics. And so all that being said, um, I was trying to think of anything else. Yeah, hermeneutically, that's what we're talking about. So then you get into what Chris is talking about. So you get into the New Testament and you start finding out there's, you know, some, uh, there's different types. There's things in the New Testament. A type is basically something in the Old Testament that pointed, uh, was an example of, or I, I can't think of the best wording to say this, but it points towards something else. You know what I mean? So like um, the sacrifices in the temple were a type of the, the perfect sacrifice of Christ. The, a type is always a lesser that points to a bigger and, a, and, and an example that points to something else. So it's not, 
uh, an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's a picture of, uh, of something else. And so there's many types uh, that the New Testament tells us about in the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, there are some people that, that uh, it, it basically say if the New Testament doesn't specifically say it's a type, then it's not a type. And then you got the other end of the spectrum where people are trying to find types everywhere. You know what I mean? It's like I, I remember hearing a pastor say one time, you know, when they threw Joseph down into the pit before, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Joseph into the pit. And then, and then the brothers pulled him out and sold him into slavery. That was a type of Christ because Christ went into the grave and then he came back out of the grave. And then he went down into Egypt and then he came back out of Egypt. You know, so they're looking for Jesus everywhere. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and so you don't want to do that. So I think you can have two extremes of just trying to find Jesus everywhere, you know what I mean, and looking for Jesus, looking for Jesus in places that Jesus isn't. But then knowing the whole thing is about Jesus, but you're not looking for him in places that aren't actually about him, you know. Joseph going down to the, I mean, lots of people fell in pits. They weren't all types of Christ, you know what I mean? But, and, and Joseph going to the pit is not necessarily a type. But when the New Testament says it's a type, it is. Because that's scripture interpreting scripture. That's God himself going, look You know what I mean? Um, uh, but I do believe there are some types outside. I don't, I don't think that I can think of there's any place specifically where it talks about, um, uh, like, the. is there any specific New Testament reference of the uh, sacrifice of, uh, the, the tempted sacrifice of Isaac being, a picture of Christ? I can't think of any, but I think that's a type. You know what I mean? You can look at that, and I mean, he says, you know, that he provides a ram in place of his son, and then, you know, and, and he was going to sacrifice his son. Uh, you know, so I, I think there's a type, there's typology there. Um, but anyway, sorry, I took a little, is there any pun there? I took a type. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so I think th- what I'm getting at is we want to, we want to interpret things literally, and we want to interpret things grammatically, historically. Now, when we say the word literal, you interpret poetry like you interpret poetry. You know, you interpret narrative like you would read narrative. Uh, you interpret prophecy as you would read prophecy. Uh, you, we're not saying you read poetry and you read it literal, like, you know, the, 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 the stars proclaimed his name. You know, no, we're not saying, I mean, poetry is poetry. It's talking about God's creation glorifying him. But if it's a narrative, it, it means what it says. It's a narrative, historical narrative. And so, again, we, we interpret narrative. Uh, we interpret commands as if they're commands. Poetry as if it's poetry. Prophecy if it's po- prophecy. Uh, and then we're trying to get the authorial intent of whatever has been revealed to us. Um, all that being said, we, um, you know, when we read the Old Testament, uh, we're looking at the Old Testament, who it was written to, why it was written. That's going to help you to understand what it means. Uh, you don't take the New Testament and read back into the Old Testament. Every time it mentions Israel, you don't read the word church. The church did not exist until Acts 2. Yes, Israel was an assembly. Israel is not the church. They're two distinct, different entities. And it blew the minds of the apostles when they watched the church being developed. It wasn't like, oh, this is just like Israel part two. This was unique and different and not the same, and they didn't understand it. And God had to reveal it to them audibly for them, or, and through dreams for them to grasp what was actually happening. So, again, it was very different and very unique. Um, so, you know, we, we at this church, would, we would call it dispensational hermeneutics. Uh, and, uh, you know, as MacArthur always says, we're leaky dispensationalists. In other words, we're not looking, we're not 
starting with dispensationalism and looking for all these different kinds of dispensations throughout history. We're just saying there are some differences between pre-flood and post-flood. There's differences between Israel and the church. There's differences between the church and the stuff that happens in the tribulation. And there's differences between all that and the millennial kingdom. And there's differences between the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. And those things cannot coincide because there's differences. There's just stark differences. And so when God makes promises to Israel, whether it's land, whether it's about the throne, the kingdom, the house, all that stuff, it's, it's Israel. He's talking to Israel. And he has to do what he said he would do. Uh, you know, you could say it this way. When God says something in the Old Testament, it can mean more in the sense that as Revelation goes on, we learn there's more to that. Does that make sense? There's something bigger. That was talking about Christ too. But it can't mean less. You know, when they knew it was going to be a piece of land and he gives geographical borders and he tells them forever, it's theirs forever, it can't be less than that. You know what I mean? It, so there exists forever. Christ must reign on David's throne in Jerusalem, in that land. And those things all have to happen. And his house has to be established and his throne has to be established forever. And with the new covenant, Judah and Israel must be filled with the spirit of God and repent and return to the land in bodily form. It has to happen. It doesn't mean less than that. Does it mean more in the sense that now Gentiles are being grafted into the new covenant? Yes. What an amazing thing. And Romans talks about that. Um, Does it mean more in the sense that now we understand that we also will be a part of these land promises and all that? Yes, that's amazing. And we are being grafted in and we are part of this. And that's, we don't even deserve it. We were outside of the commonwealth of Israel and outside of the promises. We weren't part of all that. So it is more in that sense. And God revealed that to us through the church, but it's not less. He didn't change what he's doing and he didn't not mean what he said. And he didn't speak in some vague, mystical, weird way that the first group of people thought they got it, but they totally missed it. He meant something totally different. That's not how Scripture works. So what he is what he meant and what they understood. And on, more was revealed, but it doesn't mean less. So when we read the Old Testament and we read all these covenants that God made with the house of Judah and Israel or with Israel as a whole, it, it has to mean what he said, you know? And so that's what we strive to do is look at the Old Testament and interpret the Old Testament. Um, and then, again, I mean, we're going to look next week about all the things that we know now uh, that point to Christ in Deuteronomy, which they would have known it pointed to something. The circumcision of the heart would be a concept they grasped and understood. And they knew that there was something God must do in order for them to fear him and to know. They're not stupid. They would have got it, got it but... They wouldn't have been able to say, and that will happen when Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross by the Romans in, you know, 1,500 years or whatever, you know? So does that open up a can of worms? Uh, so that, that's, that's how we're doing this. Yeah. Uh, in Hebrews 11, 19, uh-huh. uh, well, that whole thing, really, <clears throat> faith Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac your descendants will be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. There it is, right there. And so that yeah. So that's a New Testament example of saying that that, that is a type of Christ. That's right. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, that's right. We wouldn't have figured that one out. 
I mean, Melchizedek, and that's a type of the priesthood of Christ. I mean, Psalms talks about it. Psalm, was that 110? Yeah, but that, that, we needed Hebrews to lay that one out for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about Melchizedek. Or are we too, are we too immature to eat the meat? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Any other questions? Like I said, I think this is kind of neat because we don't get to do this often. Yeah. 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 Uh, so if they're said specifically to Israel, they're specifically for Israel. But then I think take the whole thing. Actually, this is a good example. Jeremiah 29, you know, I, 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 prosperity for you and, and, and bringing them into the land, all that, you know. And uh, so you just keep the whole thing. So that was, that was meant for Israel. That is a promise for Israel. But we are now being grafted in to the body of Christ through the church. And we know that the church will be part of all of these promises. We understand that we will return together with Christ and we will dwell on this earth with him. And so we, in some sense, will be partakers of that promise. But that promise isn't directed to the church. That promise is directed to Israel. So I would say that is specifically talking about Israel. And it's specifically talking about what God will do for the nation. All of Israel will repent. He will bring them. His plan is for their prosperity and for their existence in that place, and he will make sure it happens. Again, fill in the blanks, through his son, through his leading, who is now the the son of David that will reign on the throne and bring them all in and all that. So you can put the whole together, but but you just want to keep it in the context of the whole. So will you benefit from Jeremiah 29 as a Christian, a Gentile Christian? Sure, absolutely. But that promise is for Israel, and it can't be less than that. It doesn't mean that, oh, well, now it's everybody. It's like, well, yeah, we're part of it. But he can't do less than what he said. It has to be for the nation, and they have to, that has to happen for them, you know? And it's not just, it doesn't talk about just those who believe from the midst of the church that will be a part of it as this whole, you know, body of Christ. But for the nation, it's talking about national repentance. Does that make sense? So... I think that's the way you read scripture. Yeah. So could you say the same thing about the Old Testament law? Like if you're reading the Spirit in the Yeah, I think, okay, so again, you take it as the whole. So Christ has fulfilled the law. He did live the perfect life. He uh, is the sacrifice. All the things that the temple pointed to, that the law talked about, was fulfilled in Christ. Um, and they all pointed to Christ. I mean, they, they were to reveal Christ. Uh, but the law is complete. The old has passed away. Hebrews, Hebrews, again, gives us very clear understanding. The old has passed away. The new has now come. Um, and so, yeah, if you read Le- Leviticus, None of that applies to you directly. You're not Israel. Those don't apply. In fact, most of the law can't even, you can't even do. There is no temple. There is no sacrifice. I mean, there's a lot of the things in the law that are impossible. Um, and, uh, but 
All that being said, first thing, the law can tell you, well, Shane just talked about it. The law exemplifies what love looks like. And from that, you can glean immense treasure. The law tells us about the character of God that has never changed. He's immutable, which you can learn a ton about who God is, how he works, what he desires, what his people are to do. I mean, there's so much you can get from the Old Testament. But you don't read it, and you're not Israel in that sense, you know. But you don't toss it because, I mean, again, it's like we, we've already talked about even, even the example of Israel was written for our benefit. The Old Testament is full of gold that tells us more and more about Christ. There's over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ that we could not discern just if we had the New Testament. I mean, to know Christ, you got to know the Old Testament, you know. So there's the Old Testament, the whole th- all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is meant for reproof, for training, correction, and righteousness, all that stuff, right? But you, again, read it in the context and to whom it was written. You know, when you're reading Deuteronomy, it's a renewal of the covenant to the second generation for them to go over and take the land and to obey the Lord and all these called them to do as the nation of Israel in this new land. Leave it in that context, and that's what it means. But then from that, pull out application to your life, you know? Should, you know, and, and then the other thing, too, is if the New Testament explicitly states Old Testament principles, well, then, you know, we're all in. That's why people, we'll talk about that when we talk about the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments are, first and foremost, rearticulated by Christ, and, and he even gets to the heart behind it, right? It's not just don't murder. It's like if you're angry at your brother, you're, you're already guilty. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's like if you've committed lust in your mind or your heart, you're already guilty. So Christ explains, think about that, Christ is the one that gave them the Old Testament, and the game, he's like, here's what I meant. You know, here's, here's the heart behind what I was saying when I gave it to Israel. So all those things are reiterated. The only thing in the Ten Commandments that isn't reiterated for the church is the, the Sabbath and keeping it holy, you know. And again, it doesn't mean there's no Sabbath rest. I mean, Noah, he, you know, the whole creation order was made for all of humankind to see. God worked six days, made a seventh day of rest. But the Israelites, that was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. They, they, they must ab- obey the Sabbath, or they would die. And that's not given to the church. That's the only thing not reiterated in the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about that. So when you read the Ten Commandments, again, they were given to Israel on what Israel's moral law and code should be. But as the church, you ought to be able to discern from everything God said that that's what God loves. And then Jesus himself even said, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, you should not covenant, you should always be thankful, all those sort of things. And so we as a church, it still applies. But what I think you've got to be careful about is how people will take the, the law and they'll make the ceremonial, civil, and moral law, which is fine. I mean, that's a good way to kind of distinguish the three aspects of the law. And they'll say the civil and ceremonial don't apply, but the moral does. And it's like, no, none of them apply. Just kind of say it that way. But the reason the moral does is because of who God is, what he requires, and what he has always said, and what Jesus himself even emphasized. Does that make sense? So you don't just be like, these two-thirds of it don't apply, one-third applies, and then within that one-third, nine-tenths of that apply. You know what I mean? It's like you just go, Christ fulfilled the law, but then Christ also said, do not murder, do not steal, do not kill, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that with the clean and the unclean and all that. I mean, it's... There, it, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is a great way of saying it. Actually, I, I, we just did a Q&A at the high school here at the school. Somebody asked about tattoos because Leviticus 19, I don't remember the verse, but talks about don't make marks on your body. Light the nations around you. First thing, that's not about you. But there's a principle there that you ought to really think through. The whole point was for them to be distinct and set apart and not light the nations around them. And, and think about like our culture right now. Everything in our culture is... Everything in the culture that is anti-Christ and anti-God is just immersed in all of the, 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 the style of hair, the color of the hair, the transgenderism, the tattoos, all that stuff. I would say as a Christian, you ought to look at the application and go, I don't want to be anything like the culture. I don't want to be anything like reflect the culture around me. Now, again, you can't say God said don't get a tattoo because that was to Israel. But I think the principle that is applied, the reason God said that to Israel I think directly apply. I, I, I was telling a kid recently, if no one in this nation had a tattoo, I'd feel like, get a tattoo, who cares? The fact that everybody that hates God is covered in tattoos ought to make you think before you act. You know what I mean? Like, be different in everything that you do and do not be like the culture. So, I mean, we're always making those choices. Um, and we're all, but again, we want to we make sure that we are, we are not adopting or adapting to the cultural norms, no matter what we do as Christians, we want to be holy. That's what the principle is. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's true. Well, and, and again, it's like, you know, for a kid, if your mom and dad doesn't want you to get a tattoo, honor your mother, mother and father. I mean, it's like that's the principle at play, you know. Um, if your wife doesn't want you to get a tattoo, well, then you're laying down your life for your wife. So that's, how, that's the principle. There's lots of principles at play. Love always governs and guides. But then holiness is right there with it. You want to do all things for his glory uh, to, to be more holy. So, again, I just think you just got to wrestle with those things. Does that make sense? But, but Leviticus can help you to see. Yeah, you're not Israel, but why did he say that to Israel? And now how would that principle apply in your life? That's legitimate, you know? And that was it. They were supposed to be distinct, set apart, a holy nation that was unique, both in the way they governed themselves and the way that they worshiped and the way that they lived and treated one another. Um, and the heart of all of it was love, love for God and love for others. So I think that might be good. We're, we're at time. Well, you got one more? Yeah. It's it's a it's not a scripture. It's it's a different hermeneutic. So you got to start different to end different. You know what I mean? And again, they are brothers in Christ. If, if you know, this is not a, a, a you know if you got a, a friend that thinks that the church has replaced Israel, that can be totally fine. It really depends on the implications and applications of that. You know, and then what they do with that. You know, if they end up fighting the church and badmouth, I mean, then then your theology is not governing your heart. You got to work on that. Uh, but but it's a whole different starting point. Um, and yeah. Can I just ask a question regarding that? So a lot of people say, you know, this whole replacement theology, but isn't the tribulation, you went, just went through the revelation, tribulation is for Israel. Mm-hmm. So that would 
Yeah, but it, again, they won't, they won't, they see it different, you know? So it's two different starting points, which you really got to get back down to that, you know? And, uh, and while we start with this theology as opposed to this, so, but yeah, good question. That'd probably be another one for another day. I tell you what. Oh. Oh man. The the this uh, the the I think they crossed the Gulf of Aquaba. I was trying to find the the uh, the picture of the hole. You guys can leave. Thanks. <laughs> uh,